You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Whether or not God exists, I take seriously. Fighting over God is not spectator sport. It's seeking ultimate reality. If God exists, then discerning God's traits gives insights into what God is like. If God does not exist, then God's make-believe traits clash and conflict exposing God as fraud. God is called all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. God is also supposed to be perfectly free. Free will is tricky for humans. So what does it mean for God to be free? And would God's freedom affect human destiny? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I begin with a leading philosopher of religion who argues that God's attributes are coherent, Richard Swinburne. Why does Richard claim that God's freedom is one of God's primary attributes? Richard, what does it mean for God to be perfectly free? Means for him not to have any irrational causes acting on him. When we make a choice, uh, shall I eat the cream cake or not? I think it's a bad thing to eat the cream cake, but I feel an inclination, an irrational inclination to do so. So, and more generally, we're subject to inclinations to eat too much, drink too much, sleep too much, etc., etc. God is not subject to any such inclination. He sees the moral quality of things, good or bad, as the case may be, and is influenced solely by that. Therefore, he is always going to do what is good. But, of course, there are enormous numbers of things that are good. Very seldom, I think, is there one best action in a situation for uh, any one of us sometimes to do, but certainly for God to do. Uh, Sometimes the choice before God will be between several equal best actions. But very often, I think, the choice before God is an infinite number of actions, each of which is better than the last, such that whatever he does, uh, he could have done better. Obvious example, how many human beings shall he create, assuming human beings are a good thing? Any number he creates will be less than some number which he could create. The same applies even if he makes an infinite number. So in that situation, what does perfect goodness amount to? Well, perfect goodness will involve doing the best when there is a best, doing one of the equal best when there is a best, and simply otherwise doing good actions. That's all that is logically possible for a being who is a good being, as good as a being can be, 
uh, a being can be as good as a being can be, even if the actions he does are not always the best, because often there isn't a best. The freedom that God has to do this, is that constrained in any way at any one moment, for example, by previous acts that God did? Does that put a limit on future acts? Sometimes, yes. If God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. That, that's a moral limit on his future actions, and there are obvious logical limits. That's to say, if he brings about the First World War, then he can't later uh, bring it about that another war is the First World <laughs> War. Um, there are obvious logical limitations. Does that therefore limit the perfect freedom? No, because the perfect freedom is freedom to do only what is logically possible. And in, in virtue of not being a subject to irrational inclinations, he will always inevitably do the best. What about the creation of the universe? Was God perfectly free to either create or not create this universe? Uh, goodness uh, is itself. There would be something wrong with a solitary divine being all by himself. How could he be perfectly good unless he was concerned to bring about more goodness? Richard says that God is perfectly free because God is not subject to irrational desires and therefore God can do only what is good. But if God can do only what is good, if God cannot do otherwise, why is God so good for doing good? And if God has no choice in doing good, then God does not seem so free. Is this a problem with language or with God? What about God's freedom from God's perspective. I go to Oxford to meet Richard's successor as professor of the philosophy of the Christian religion, Brian Leftow. Brian, what does that mean to be perfectly free from God's perspective? Well, it's a fact that if you were to measure freedom by its extent, by how many choices you have, there's one respect in which God would be less free than we are. I mean, we have the option of choosing evil. If God is perfectly good, his nature just rules that out. So the question is, in what other respect might God's freedom be perfect? It's a freedom that takes him only toward the good. Uh, it could also be a freedom that's more extensive than ours in that God can do a vast range more of good things than we can. You have freedom as long as you can do otherwise. And there are infinitely many ways in which God can do otherwise. But God's freedom itself, is, it seems like that's a little bit two stages removed from our life. It matters in this sense. We believe that it's right to thank and praise God for what he did. If he wasn't free in doing it, oh. if he wasn't responsible for it, it wouldn't really be appropriate to thank him or to praise him. So if he had to do it, if he had no choice whatsoever, and so he was forced to make this world, I mean, I'd still... Thank him. Thanking him for something he was really responsible for, or would it just be sort of thanking, the way you'd thank a machine for cranking out, for, for crank, cranking out a result you happen to like, thanking the fruit machine because it came up with three lemons? If it were a machine, I, I guess I wouldn't thank it, but even if God had to do it, you know, I'd, I'd probably be pr pretty happy to thank him. Well, part of the reason you wouldn't thank a machine is that it's not conscious. Right. But if there were such a thing as a conscious machine, if there were a robot, who was programmed to do something nice for you. Uh, 
and it knew what it was doing, but it was just working out a program and had no choice about it. Would you really feel that you were doing something appropriate and thanking the robot? You know, I'm a, pol I'm a polite guy, you know, <laughs> I'd probably... <laughs> but, but notice the, you know, the, the appropriateness is coming from you, not from a dessert in the machine. Yeah, but you're sort of judging God, aren't you? Kind of looking at his motivations. I'm checking on your motivation to, to see why you created this stuff. And if it's the right motivation, I'm going to worship you. Not the right motivation, you know, I got better things to do with my time. Well, since we do have to direct our worship or not, we do have to make those judgments. I mean, if, if we found that God was motivated to create this world by cruelty, we wouldn't worship him for that. No, fair, fair. I wouldn't put it by saying we're judging God, but we're saying if this practice is to make sense, maybe there are certain presuppositions about the way God has to be. So your reasoning, in essence, is a little bit reverse engineering. You're saying that we are worshiping, our religion tells us to worship. Now I'm thinking... I want to make sure I'm worshiping for the right reason. So what kind of right reason can there be? A reason seems to be God made a free choice to make it this way. Right. As deeply as you believe in God, which you do, that if for some reason you found out that God had to make things the way they are, you would kind of kiss him off? And Well, no, I probably wouldn't. But I would realize that I was in the position of thanking a robot. And a robot programmed by its nature to do one thing rather than another it seems to me to be an inferior sort of thing to be to be a, to, to a free agent so i would i wouldn't want to think that about god if if i if i had a way to rationally avoid it brian says that if god were a robot if god had no choice but had to create the universe such a robot god would not be worthy of worship Good, now we're getting somewhere. God, to be real, requires real freedom. But do God's other supposed traits contradict God's freedom? I follow the trail to Notre Dame, where I meet philosopher Peter Van Inwagen. Peter analyzes God's traits, tests them for conflicts. Peter, how do we deal with God's freedom in light of his other characteristics, which would seem to put a, a constraint on God, such as uh, his um, moral perfection uh, and his uh, goodness? I think that um, we have to regard the idea that God is the great po greatest possible being as placing severe constraints on his freedom. His freedom can only be freedom to choose between alternative goods. So there are a lot of areas in which God is constrained. Mm -hmm. Things he can't do. You know, it's no praise to you that you can do something uh, because you're uh, imperfect. And I don't see why anybody should criticize uh, a being for whom all bad things were simply impossible. I've been troubled by the traditional view that the, the whole period of time between when God created the universe and, and now is, how shall I say, like scripted out. Even though God made, made the decision originally to structure all of this, he has no freedom whatsoever. Think of God as making just one big decision, like Captain Picard looking at a possible world and saying, make it so. And this would consist in his just decreeing everything that he decrees. But it's still a script. Well, he, of course, he doesn't have to know ahead, anything ahead of time. Suppose the script is a big flow diagram. You know, suppose he decrees timelessly 
this is what the flowchart looks like. And that reads things. If Jones does this, then go here. If Jones does that, go there. And there's two different boxes. There's a huge, hugely complicated flowchart that he decrees. That leaves it open uh, what people will do. No, no, okay. I, I grant that that, that that will give you free will. Mm -hmm. But what it doesn't do is have God have any uh, freedom to act other than to follow his own flow diagram. He doesn't follow it. He tells the world to follow. He just, he just says, let it be. Okay. And he's always said, let it be. And he's always decreeing. But then he's doing it. nothing. Well, during this he, every moment he's doing the same thing that he did at any other time. Every moment, of course, he's keeping the world in existence at that moment. Uh, it's impossible for him to decree one flow chart at one time, at a different from another, but at each time he is decreeing that, that's what he's doing it at that time. So he can't change it. But, but there's no active creative change or anything that God is doing. He's, he's upholding it, I grant that, and he's allowing the world yeah. to follow it, but I he grant doesn't that. He doesn't change his mind. And nothing new ever happens that he has to take into account. Mm -hmm. Even if he didn't know what was going to happen, he's already taken account of the possibility of that happening somewhere back, uh, somewhere in the, in, in the flow chart. Mm -hmm. So he may be learning new things, um, but uh, he doesn't have to do anything different. It's a little passive for me. I wish he were more active. It, it mm -hmm. seems too small. I don't know why too small. What it is is always the same, that's all. You know, that's troubling, though, it's always the same. I, you know, I haven't got at what's troubling you yet. <laughs> that, that, that God did something at one moment, and then forever after, it's just following a script. It seems to me that you're thinking of God as willing this flowchart at one time and then letting things coast thereafter. Now, I mean that he's willing it the whole time. God's freedom doesn't consist in his ability to change that flowchart for another. He's so good, there's nothing that could require it to change because it takes account of every possibility. What he could have done, what he was able to do, was to uh, produce another timeless flowchart for the universe. That's what his free choice is between. God's attributes do constrain God. God must be morally perfect. God has no choice. I'm still bothered by God's alleged flowchart of the world, scripting every last detail of everything that happens. Did God write the flowchart script prior to creation? timelessly and statically, and set it in spiritual cement, as it were, such that no event could ever change, such that not even God could ever edit the script. I'll here plant the flag of my disbelief. I'd not have a God who is so profoundly perfect that God could never be free enough to change and do new things. Still at Notre Dame, I consult the legendary Christian philosopher, Alvin Plantinga. If you take change the sort of ordinary initial way, um, obviously God can change. What is it to change? Well, it's to have a property at one time that you didn't have at some earlier time. Prior to God's having created me, he did not have the property of having created me. After he created me, he did have that property. So that's a case of a change. 
But that's not an intrinsic change of God. That's a, a change of something external to God. That's right. It's not an intrinsic change. It's not so easy to say what's intrinsic and what isn't. I mean, um, maybe God believes different things at different times, too. Right now, he believes that you and I are talking to each other. Say, a week ago, he didn't believe that, that we were talking to each other, because then we weren't. Now, is that an intrinsic change or an extrinsic change? Well, some would say that that's an intrinsic change and God can't do that. And so God is outside of time and sort of sees the whole blocked universe of the four-dimensional time in one enormously fulfilling moment. <laughs> right. That's right. So I, I was presupposing in what I was saying so far that God is not outside of time. God is in time. I don't. I can. I really can't make sense out of the out of the suggestion that God is outside of time. I, I think the motivation for why people have said that God is not in time is is to address this question of change. If you're perfect, you can't change, and if you're in time, you have to change, and therefore you're not in time. That makes sense to me. The idea of learning more, uh, creatively exploring is a, a great joy and I would think that any mental being, if I reason by analogy, would also want that creative experience to be to be uh, more tomorrow than I, I, I was yesterday. Uh, and if God is in time as you think, there is a tomorrow and there was a yesterday. So God uh, knows new things all the time in one regard. I mean, now he knows that say, uh, as a matter of fact, now you and I are talking, but he didn't know that a while back because then you and I weren't talking. So there is that kind of change, but I don't that's think... Somewhat that's a somewhat trivial change. I would want to push it further, that God can really do things in the future that he didn't even conceive of in the past. Uh-huh. Uh, you I, like I, that or not really? No, I don't like that because, <laughs> because uh, it seems to me... Um, well, maybe there's a kind of clash of desiderata or a clash <laughs> of intuitions here. I mean, a really perfect being, I would say, would have to be perfect with respect to knowledge, and being perfect with respect to knowledge includes knowing everything. But knowing everything means that you uh, aren't going to learn anymore in the future. And you might think that being able to learn new things and have new experiences and the like is a really good thing. So a perfect being isn't going to have all possible good properties or good making properties. I suppose it's a good thing to be uh, courageous in the face of terrible uncertainty <laughs> and to fight overwhelming odds with courage and perseverance. That's never going to happen to God. That I, that I agree. And it's the same thing here. If you're truly uh, omniscient, then it's not the case that, naturally enough, you're going to learn new things. Doesn't God have a sense of enrichment in, in your continuing to do new things? Yes, um, maybe he does. But of course, he's always known I was going to do those things. It's not like now, okay, and now I see that Al is really going to do so-and-so. <laughs> he knew that long before I came to be. I would feel that a God who is not genuinely creating new things that, that even he was not aware of in the past is a somewhat impoverished God. This is, again, is this sort of conflict of what you might call great-making properties. Mm. So I say a great making property is uh, being omniscient, being maximal with respect to knowledge. 
Here's another possibly great making property that, that you are pointing to. <laughs> Increasing in knowledge, coming to know new things, seeing things afresh, creativity, and the like of that. You can't have them both. Many theologians, uh, to Al, God can have different extrinsic properties at different times, which is a kind of external change. But God can never have an intrinsic change of God's internal nature. Al recognizes a clash of intuitions between God's great-making properties. I like that, but I remain troubled by this impoverished God who cannot change and do new things. I put the problem to a leading Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig. Bill is a seasoned debater. I'll give him a go. Bill, was God free not to make a creation? Well, certainly on the traditional Judeo-Christian view, creation is a freely willed act of God and that therefore God could have refrained from creation. And philosophers will express this by saying that we can conceive of a possible world in which God alone exists. And there's no space, there's no time, there is nothing exterior to God. And God is also free to create multiple worlds and infinite numbers of multiple universes. That's right. The idea that this universe is the only universe that exists isn't part of Christian theism or a commitment of, of traditional monotheistic theology. Are there other things that God is uh, not free to do other than not doing logical contradictions? I don't think so, though. Can God sin? No, for example, he couldn't sin because that would be a logical contradiction for a, an absolutely and essentially holy being to do evil. But that requires you to define as God's essence yes. a, a ho holy being who right. is wholly good. Right, and, and that I think is part of the definition of God. As St. Anselm said, God is the greatest conceivable being, and so he would have to be a perfect being, and that would include moral perfection. I see a slight difference between God being unable to create a married bachelor mm -hmm. and God being unable to sin because God is good because in one case it's just a fundamental contradiction, in the other case it's a contradiction of what you assume to be a hard and fast characteristic of God. I don't think there's any metaphysical distinction between the two. Both of them describe logical impossibilities. When you cash out the conception of who God is, namely the greatest conceivable being a perfect being, then it's evident that moral imperfection would be incompatible with such a being, and therefore, if God exists, he would be essentially good, and therefore incapable of sin. To be worthy of worship, a being has to be morally perfect, and any being that is not worthy of worship can't be God, it would seem to me, because you wouldn't owe uh, him worship, and, and God is to be worshiped. Some of these um, arguments do have a circularity to them, because you're characterizing a God to be worshiped, as if worshiped is like an independent variable. I mean, maybe, maybe there's an omnipotent being who's almost perfect, and maybe we should worship or maybe not. I mean, I, uh -huh. I can't eliminate those possibilities. Do you think if there were a being that were extremely powerful, right. that that would merit worship? Does might make right? I, I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, if he created me, I, I'd probably give him the benefit of the doubt. The, the whole thing is what you mean by God. 
So that's why I recur repeatedly to Anselm's concept of God as the greatest conceivable being, that there is no being conceivably greater than God. And since to be morally perfect is a perfection, a greatest conceivable being would have to be morally perfect. If there were some being that, that was morally imperfect, well, I could conceive of something greater than that. And so that being wouldn't be God. God, if there is a God, is supposed to be perfectly free. But free to do what? Everything? No, even for God, there are limitations. God cannot make two plus two equal five. God cannot make it true that you or I never existed. But to make God intrinsically unchanging goes for me one trait too far. If I were to believe in God, I'd want God to be as free as possible. And in battles between God's great-making properties, I'd root for God's freedom to win. I'd hope that, for God, the perfection of creativity and growth trumps the perfection of changelessness and nothing ever to learn. Reality would be more exciting. But what about God's providence? What happens to God's promise that God's plan will be fulfilled, which includes, I suppose, life after death? If God is free to change, some believers might worry. I'd not worry. But if eternal existence were ossified by changeless perfection, then I would worry. Eternal existence for God and for us turns on God's freedom, which, one way or another, takes us closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.